Sometimes in you know nomenclature today, you'll hear someone say, "Well, Luther held to consubstantiation," and you know, more or less, I think we know what they mean by that. But to be accurate, it may be better to avoid that term, consubstantiation, in order to emphasize Luther actually has in mind a type of sacramental union. Mm. It's that strong for him. It's not merely that the presence of Christ is, is around or with or under the elements. There's actually a sacramental presence in which a union occurs between the two. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequence. Dr. Barrett, welcome to your podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so glad to to interview and to work on your new book, The Reformation as Renewal, Retrieving the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church with Zondervan. So thanks for writing this. Yeah, Sam, you get, I mean, this is the fun, the most exciting, the the middle of the book, we get to talk about Luther. That's right. You're special. I mean, who else? Hey, I appreciate it. (laughs) These other guys you have helping you, you know, we just can't trust this kind of stuff to them. <laughs> no. They don't know what they're doing. No. That's good. Well, good. We're covering the middle section here, and I want to get started with your chapter here called From Union to Schism. So I just want to start off with a really easy one, okay? So there's pretty big division presented, you, you present, over the Lord's Supper with Zwingli and, and Luther here, the communicatio idiomatum. Why don't you start by just talking about that a little bit? What was on the line? What was happening? What's being addressed? Did they get along? Did Luther come in with a battle axe and just slam it down on the table? What really happened? It, it's a bit of all of the above, isn't it? Yeah. Goodness, where do we even begin? Maybe we should start with Zwingli. Okay. Sometimes he doesn't get enough attention. Luther, Luther's so bold, he gets a lot of attention. So Zwingli is really important. And he is writing on the Lord's Supper fairly early on to, to give him credit. And thinking about this issue, sometimes even before the controversy reaches its height, how do we describe Zwingli? Well, I think sometimes Zwingli is caricatured as if, you know, he's this radical. He would have been the first one to say he's not. And we can talk about what the differences are. He's somewhere in between. He's not the radicals, but he's not, definitely not Luther. And later on, you know, this is later, but Calvin. He's not Calvin either. His position on the supper is it's unique to him and a number of his followers, which is one of the reasons why it creates such controversy. It's hard to describe Zwingli's view in one sense because there's many facets of it. I think Zwingli, coming out of his own background, we have to remember, right, Zwingli dies on the battlefield. Yeah. And so early on, he's very familiar with chaplaincy and what it means to go to war. He uses the illustration to actually illustrate uh, what he thinks is happening in the supper. And so he uses a military victory to say, well, here you have this battle. It's a historical event. You either win or lose. And depending on the outcome, you're either celebrating or lamenting what's Mm -hmm. happened. If you're, you know, you triumph, 
you are celebrating that triumph. And so Zwingli says, well, that's not, that's not all that different than what's happening when we celebrate the triumph of the Lord's Supper. And for Zwingli, there's a strong emphasis there on remembering. Now we have to remember that everyone affirmed that there is a remembrance involved. Sure. Right. No one denied that. It was more a matter of what do we mean by that? And is that all that there is? For Zwingli, remembrance was really key. It's a type of public memorial in that sense, by which we are remembering what Christ has done, how he has triumphed in the end. And though this wasn't the only illustration he would use, he liked to also use the illustration of a husband and wife hmm. and the marriage ring to say that, again, he brings in the military, right? Let's say the husband's a soldier. He's about to go on a trip. And he gives his ring to his wife or he gives his wife her ring. Either way, the point is, even when he's not there, he's physically absent. But even when he's not there, he's still present because whenever the wife, the ring, touches the ring, wears the ring, she knows this is the promise that he made to me that my husband will return. And Zwingli says, well, that's not all that different than Christ. Christ is actually gone. He has ascended into the heavens, and yet, at the same time, he's made a promise. He's made a promise to return. He has a pledge, and the supper is that type of pledge, like the husband's ring. It's a pledge of love, says Zwingli, towards his church, that he will come through on what he's promised. And in that sense, for Zwingli, the supper is a type of commemoration. Now, this is where things become controversial because he doesn't stop there. He, we have to remember, Zwingli doesn't think he's doing something new. He actually is appealing to the creed in particular. This is where he thinks he has his aha, gotcha moment with Luther because he says, well, the creed says that Christ died, was buried, rose, and ascended to heaven. And so Zwingli says, I am taking the creed seriously. He is actually in the heavens at the right hand of the Father. And this really troubles the Lutherans, right? Mm -hmm. Because they think, well, Zwingli, you're, you are making too sharp of a distinction here between the two natures of Christ. In fact, it, when it gets really heated, they start throwing the accusation of Nestorianism at him. Yeah. <laughs> which didn't sit well with Zwingli. But in his defense, Zwingli will say, listen, I'm not just appealing to the creed. But I'm also appealing to the scriptures themselves. When we look at the ways, the hermeneutic of Jesus, as Zwingli would have referred to it, what do we see? Well, we see, take John 6, or texts on the Lord's Supper itself. For Zwingli, we should interpret these like we would interpret Jesus' other parables. Not, it's not that he's saying it is a parable, but he's saying the same type of logic applies. So if we interpret the parables as parables, and understand that it's not to be taken in the strongest sense, why would we then come to Jesus's words and assume anything else then? No, this is a symbol, but for Zwingli, that means that when Jesus says, this is my body, it means that this symbolizes my body. So in that sense, it's a symbol. And so he doesn't want to confuse. He has a very sharp distinction between the sign and the thing itself, and that which a thing is signified by. So all of this is leads Zwingli in the end to just sum it up here to a final conclusion, and that is because sometimes I think Zwingli gets painted as a mere 
memorial type of position. He does acknowledge that there is a spiritual presence. However, the way he says it doesn't quite satisfy the Lutherans because he doesn't mean what Luther means. He doesn't mean a type of real presence. Rather, what he means is there's a spiritual presence that is within the Christian so that when the Christian approaches the table, well, now you actually have the presence of Christ in you. So it's not a physical presence, but you do have a type of assurance that takes place in a symbolic way when you're taking the bread and when you're taking the wine. Now, do you want me to press into Luther yet, or do you, is that what you were asking? Yes, go into Luther a little bit, and okay. then we'll then I'll ask a question in a minute about kind of metaphysics, doctrine of okay. God. So, yeah, uh, this is where I think it's helpful to see Luther in the context of the polemic that really erupts around Zwingli. And it's not just him. There are others too. But for Luther's understanding of the supper is quite different. Let's just take Luther and Rome and the Mass, for example. When you go back and you look at the early 1520s and the way that Luther is writing against Rome at this point, sometimes people have the impression that, well, Luther is rejecting transubstantiation because he doesn't like the fact that Rome is saying something quite emphatic about the presence of Christ. That's not a good reading of Luther. Luther is not upset with transubstantiation for that reason. Luther actually thinks that transubstantiation doesn't communicate the real presence of Christ strongly enough. In other words, if it is merely a transubstantiation in which one thing is turned into another, even though the accents remain, Luther thinks that's insufficient. So what does Luther want instead? Luther thinks that's inadequate. We must go further and say, no, there actually is a union that takes place that respects the integrity of the bread, the wine, but Christ's real presence itself. And so this is important to emphasize because Sometimes in you know nomenclature today, you'll hear someone say, "Well, Luther held to consubstantiation," and you know more or less, I think we know what they mean by that. But to be accurate, it may be better to avoid that term consubstantiation in order to emphasize Luther actually has in mind a type of sacramental union. Mm. It's that strong for him. It's not merely that the presence of Christ is, is around or with or under the elements. There's actually a sacramental presence in which a union occurs between the two. That's important because that idea of a consubstantiation, you can trace that back to the late medieval period. You look at Duns Scotus, mm-hmm. William of Ockham, even it's more in seed form. But Luther's saying more than them. He really is. And so when he turns to a sacramental type of unity, Luther is trying to communicate that, well, let me just quote him here. He says at one point, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, you know, he's quoting Jesus, of course. Cannot be a trope because the expression in my blood has the same meaning as through or with my blood. The bread and the cup, then the point is that they're not mere signs, you know, contrary to what Zwingli is saying. Yeah. Now, there's all kinds of discussion in the history of interpretation as to what does this mean? What is Luther assuming about the two natures of Christ? I think some good work's been done to show that, because some have thought, well, Luther is really, and this is new, Luther is departing from medieval Christology. 
there's been some good work done to show actually he's quite reliant on medieval Christology hmm. at a number of points. And as in terms of, because you asked Sam about the two natures of Christ, it may be better to say it's actually certain Lutherans, one of them being Johannes Brenz or Johannes Brenz, who run with things a little bit further to actually say there's a communication that occurs between the two natures themselves, the divine nature and the human nature of Christ, in order to explain this emphasis on the ubiquity of Christ at the table. Now, this is a whole other story, but this becomes really repugnant mm. to the Reformed tradition. At this point, Peter Martyr Vermigli in particular takes aim at Brent's and then begins this huge critique. Others join in to this debate, including Heinrich Bullinger and Theodore Beza, among others. Beza is really fascinating. He gets forgotten in all of these discussions. Um, he says at one point, you wish that the... You can feel his irritation here. He's talking about the Lutherans. He says, you wish that the flesh of Christ is adorned with all the properties of the divinity. So what's going on in Beza's mind? He thinks that certain figures have like Brent's have actually confused or mixed the two natures. And to him, that's a red Chalcedonian fight right. to say, no, that would actually violate Chalcedon. He goes on to say, we wish to unite it to the divine essence of the Son so that one and the same thing, and here he has in mind hmm. the person of Christ, is essentially God and man. So what's so fascinating about this debate is the further it is perpetuated, it's not just a debate between Zwingli and Luther, though it is at first. And we can talk more about, you know, Marburg and, you know, what happens then. There's some lively stories. Yeah, yeah. But, and it really incorporates their personalities. But the point I'm making here is it really evolves beyond them so that you have Reformed theologians and Lutheran theologians on both sides. Now, what's so important here is this, both sides are claiming the fathers. Both sides are even claiming some of, you know, a medieval continuity. And both sides think that they are representing a more faithful Christology. And both sides are accusing the other side of being uh, of certain Christological heresies. Uh, so the, it really isn't resolved. If anything, the debate heats up all the more in the end. Right. Well, let me dial us in even a little further, try, you know, on this subject. And I will say in these couple of chapters here, for me, this was the most stimulating discussion. So I'll ask you the question. It's still related to the supper, obviously, but they really got into a discussion over the actual location of the resurrected body of Christ, right? And so you brought in some discussion on realism and Platonism. And my question to you is just their metaphysic, their doctrine of God, what role really did that play in their discussion of the Lord's Supper? And then eventually, as it does get heated at Marburg and these things. I think, yeah, this is a very difficult issue. It's very difficult to explain, in part because sometimes those who are involved on each side of the debate don't necessarily tell us, oh, here are my philosophical right. presuppositions when I interpret this text or when I make this polemical statement. So sometimes we have to discern those. But all that to say, I think it does complicate things in a good way. There's that thesis out there that 
blames the Reformation for the modernism and eventually the secularism that comes in future centuries, right? Yeah. Saying, well, the reformers, they cut the cord of participation, mm. that the realist tradition kept intact, and they did this by this overemphasis on the external to the exclusion of God's real presence. And usually Luther, though even Calvin and others get blamed in this regard as if they're these voluntarist, nominalists, very aggressive voluntarist anomalous, very intentionally carrying on, you know, the legacy of, say, you know, William of Ockham, for example. Mm -hmm. I hear it all the time. You know, you can pick up any number of academic books or lectures and you'll hear it come out at some point because they're trying to figure out what is, who's to blame? Mm -hmm. What's the bridge from, say, the late medieval period to modernism? And the reformers are usually the targets. The problem with this, well, there's, you know, I've talked about this on other episodes as well. It's just way more complicated than that. It's not to say that voluntarism and nominalism, like you can't find any traces of it, but to to paint the reformers in that light as if this is the program by which they are interpreting everything is just it's just fallacious. Mm -hmm. Now, one test case here is the Lord's Supper, mm -hmm. because at the Lord's Supper, regardless of who you know you agree or disagree with you begin to see indications of realism come through, or at least in the background, so that you have a number of Reformed and then Lutheran historians both picking up on certain realist or even Platonist, how do I put it, indicators or themes, a bit of a flavor at times. Mm -hmm. it, and so for that reason, there's a big question mark, okay, well, what kind of philosophy do they assume when they're making this type of defense? Just to you know, put one scholar out there, Peter Stevens, a well-known scholar on Zwingli and, and Luther, he suggests that Luther moved from a word-to-spirit hmm. understanding of the sacrament, whereas Zwingli, by contrast, reversed it. So spirit, then word, as, and this is where the, you know, the criticism came through, as if the word is contingent upon the spirit, hmm. which proved pretty controversial. And then he makes this fascinating point. He says, well, if that's the case, then a Platonist opposition could be, a, could be at work between hmm. outward and inward so that what is outward cannot affect what is inward. A and yet at the same time, Stevens doesn't want to go too far to say, well, Platonism explains everything that's going on hmm. with Zwingli's opposition to Luther. He thinks there's an Augustinian influence as well on the sovereignty of God. Another scholar, Robert Kolb, does something similar. He notices this, but then he'll pull back so that he doesn't want to give you know the impression that this explains everything. But even Robert Kolb believes, no, there is a realist and Platonist presupposition that's setting the parameters of even someone like Zwingli, who you might think, oh, it, it clearly is not there. You might turn to Luther instead. But they're making the point that, yeah, even with Zwingli, you do see it at certain points and it tends to explain the logic of his position, whether or not he's consistent with that philosophical tradition in the end. That's another question. Um, we could have a similar dialogue over Luther. We have a similar dialogue over Vermigli and Beza and Calvin. But the point is, they're complicated figures. They don't necessarily set their philosophical thought on, on the table, sorry for the pun, yeah. as they're explaining how to defend their position. But it does seem that scholars do recognize 
Yeah, but each in their own way, whether they're consistent or not, fine, but each in their own way, there is a type of realist flavor that comes through to explain the logic of their position. Right. So that is why it's so fascinating. I think there needs to be, I mean, I just have a couple paragraphs on it. I Mm -hmm. just scratch the surface to say, hey, this is here. (laughs) But there really needs to be a lot more work done on this to to draw some maybe more concrete conclusions in the end. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're accustomed to trying to isolate ecclesiology off from our doctrine of God. And you're just seeing a a different example here of like it is in the driver's seat of how they come to conclusions about how you do ecclesiology. So things and if you want to, you can jump into this real quick, but things get a little bit heated. They they (laughs) eventually come to a level of conclusion, right? And I just want to read the conclusion and then you can kind of show us the heat and then maybe speak to the conclusion. So you write here, they agreed on so much, though, by the end, right? The Trinity of the Nicene Creed, the hypostatic union, original sin, justification by faith alone, preaching the gospel, baptism, and good works. They even agreed Rome's view of the supper was wrong. So that's the conclusion, right? But it got worse before it got better and ultimately didn't get super good. But yeah, speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean... Marburg is an example of this, of what you're referring to, Sam, in which you have this heroic attempt by Philip to bring them together. And it's a turning point in the 16th century in one sense, because like you mentioned, they agree on so much. Even on the Lord's Supper, they agree on a number of things in terms of the emphasis on what a sacrament is. But in the end, you're right, in the end, it fails in another sense because, mm-hmm. and they acknowledge this much at the end, they cannot quite agree on the presence of Christ. The road to that tragic conclusion and separation of ways is a lively one. You know, you have this moment in which Luther comes into the room early, you know, before one of the debates and he gets a piece of chalk and he writes on the table in Latin, this is my body. And then covers it up with, you know, a, a tablecloth. And then just at the right moment, when he, he just can't take Zwingli's hermeneutic anymore. It, as if Jesus would mean something more figural here. He, in dramatic fashion, you know, rips off the tablecloth and you know, points to the words on the table and says, this is my body. And here you have Luther furious, yeah. right? And he says, if he, if Jesus should command me to eat dung, I would do it. <laughs> yeah. That was one of my favorite oh. quotes in there. Yeah. Yeah. And then he follows up and he points to the word, the chalk on the table, and says, do justice to that text. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's so many side, there's so many angles, right, to the debate over the Lord's Supper. Like you mentioned, the metaphysics behind it, the Christology behind it, the I mean, we could look at just the theology of a sacrament, but here, what is behind all of this hermeneutics? They cannot agree in the end on how to read the Bible. And they can agree on reading the Bible on justification. They can agree on the sacrifice of Christ at the cross and so much. But when it comes to the words at the Last Supper, here their hermeneutics splits ways. Hmm. And I think that's crucial to point out because, and it doesn't end there, they turn to other texts, John 6 in particular, because Zwingli wants to say, well, this is the figure of my body. He thinks that's what Jesus means. And again, you know, 
Luther doesn't have any patience for that. So hermeneutics really is behind it. Sometimes Luther is looked at and criticized at this point. At one point, he'll call Zwingli and those with him, you are, you know, the prince of hell's poison. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is, you know, some of Luther's strongest language. The only point where he goes, he escalates things further is, you know, to use the word antichrist. But here, the prince of hell's poison is strong. I mean, he essentially says at one point, Zwingli is not of the same spirit. Now, what do we do with that? I think it can be appropriate to to look at Luther and say, Luther, could Philip, though, have had a right motive to try to bring you all together yep. for the sake of union and the Reformation itself, especially given the political factors and the threat from without? At the same time, though, we do have to understand where Luther is coming from, right? Because if there truly is a union that he thinks occurs, well, how else then are we to receive the blessings as believers from that union yep. than the Lord's Supper? So in Luther's mind, to deny this union and the real presence that's required for this union to occur is to sever Luther from Christ himself. Hmm. And in Luther's mind, what could be worse? That's everything he fought for. Right. So whether you think Luther is right or wrong at the end of the day on the Lord's Supper, you know, fine. But you have to come to terms with why Luther, why his logic leads him to such sharp words for another believer in Christ. It's good. Hi, friends. This is Matthew Barrett. We're taking a break from our podcast because I have some exciting news to share with you. I am the director of the Center for Classical Theology. And on November 13th, the evening before ETS, we have our kickoff inaugural lecture. We have asked Carl Truman to give this inaugural lecture, and the title of his address is Why We Need Classical Theology Now More Than Ever. I'd love to see you there. You can register at credomag.com. If you go to Credomag, you will find a page for the Center for Classical Theology. You can read about Carl Truman. You can find out when this event will take place, but most importantly, you can find out how you can register today. Spots are limited. I look forward to seeing you this November. So let's step into the history just a little bit. Providentially speaking, it does seem that the Lord, yeah, he's at work with princes and governing authorities and these sorts of things. And afoot for Charles especially is this Turkish threat. So Luther is called upon to speak to this. Like what's his opinion on what's going on with the war at hand and these sorts of things. So I found this to be one of Luther's larger than life kind of moments where he's asked, he's being asked to speak into some things that, that he himself says, Hey, this really isn't my jurisdiction, but he also is still speaking to it. Right. And this isn't necessarily on, I'm not speaking so much to the ethics of it, but rather like, what is his even opinion on yeah. like stratagem and stuff? So yeah. Thoughts on that. Yeah, it is fascinating. An entire book could be written on this because, I mean, just put yourself in Luther's shoes. Here, the Turks are, as Luther would call them, they're invading and they're getting closer and closer. And so, you know, Luther goes to the pub and people are worried. Hmm. They, they are seriously worried. And you have to understand from the 16th century mindset what that means. They're not worried in the sense, merely in the sense of, oh no, what will happen to say, you know, 
my salary, as we would call it today? Sure. Or what does this mean for military protection on a daily basis? They are worried about those things. But for them, it's a religious worry mm. because in the 16th century, if the Turks were successful and they did invade as far as some of them, you know, they were concerned, you know, are they actually going to come into our land? Well, at that point, Christianity itself, as they knew it, and to be more specific, the Reformation faith, the Protestant understanding of Christianity could be forfeited altogether. So that's hard for us to understand today because we have, we experience such a sharp distinction between our life and say just the common temporal civil kingdom of this world and we benefit in many ways. And then we'll go to church on Sunday. But you have to keep in mind for them that wasn't that that separation wasn't like it is for us. Now, this is fascinating because all of a sudden they have a crisis and they're coming to Luther saying, if someone's a Christian and they go to fight a Turk, can this person really be saved? Which seems like a peculiar question to us, but for them, they are struggling with, okay, God's command, you shall not murder. And then what seems to be a very, not just noble, but actually an obligation to protect Christendom as they knew it from not just a military threat, but even a religious threat. So they're caught in the middle of this. And Luther's response, it's, it is fascinating. It's not the first time that he's been approached with this. We have to keep that in mind. This happened a decade earlier as well. Now, Luther's response, I think, is telling because, well, let's just go back a decade earlier. You may remember that Luther was a little bit more aggressive. <laughs> There's history here, right? The Peasants' Revolt, mm -hmm. Luther's very strong words about taking down those rebels. And then it turns in which there's a slaughter, and then all of a sudden Luther's name is sustained, as well as even a decade before this, in which Luther did say to fight against the Turk is the same as resisting God. So you start to wonder, okay, is Luther changing his mm -hmm. mind? Is he evolving? By this point, though, I think Luther has matured enough to say, to give a pretty, a more balanced answer. Let me just put it that way. And the context is really key because, you know, previously Luther is opposing popes, popes who are using this Turkish war, as Luther calls it, as a cover for their game and so that they can rob the Germans of money. Well, in that context, Luther can say, you better not pick up the sword and go join them. You're actually feeding the papacy and you're stealing German money. But now he really does have a new context in which, okay, this isn't just about the Pope anymore. This is, he's talking to his fellow Germans as to whether they should actually pick up the sword against the Turk. And his advice is somewhat balanced. On the one hand, he says, you need to pay attention to the calling that God has given to you. So if you're the emperor or you've been called to be a soldier under the emperor's command, well, then your office is meant to protect the nation. And that's a good thing. So that if there is a threat, you are being obedient. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, he says that is a civil duty. So here you see Luther making a distinction between a civil duty and a Christian one. And so he leaves room at that point to say, well, if you're a priest or if you're a bishop, does that same obligation apply in the church itself? And there Luther gives the freedom to say, well, well, no, there is a way that you can pray, but you may not be required to go become a soldier. 
So he doesn't condemn the soldier, which they, you know, that was their original question. He doesn't condemn the soldier for picking up the sword and being obedient to the calling, that civil calling that God has given to the soldier. At the same time, he doesn't condemn the person who says, well, according to my Christian conscience, though, if my obligation is here in the church, then I'm not going to pick up the sword. I'm not going to fight. It gets more complicated than that in the end that we probably don't have time to go into. Sure. Because if Luther were called to be a soldier and he saw a priest on the battlefield, you know, waving, say, let's just say, as sometimes was done in the medieval period, the banner of the cross. Well, I think at this point, Luther would be very upset. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He even says at one point, I'll just quote him here. He says, I should run as though the devil were chasing me. Yep. You were talking about the devil, Sam, and here Luther is really emphatic. He says, for the church ought not to strive or fight with the sword. So he does draw a line there mm-hmm. to say, I'm going to run like the devil's chasing me because that is not the calling of the priest. Um, that is not the calling of the church itself. So he does want to have the liberty for to answer both individuals. Yeah, it seems as though it'd be an interesting PhD word study here <laughs> if Luther could go a single page without discussing the devil or fecal matter. Like it seems like he can't, no, can't quite no. get from one or the other. <laughs> but that's why we love to read. Uh, that's it so right. Much. I mean, he is—he he keeps it fascinating. Okay, let's move on to the Augsburg Confession. So tell us a little bit. You can go anywhere you want with this, but I'm curious where you what you'd speak to as far as just how this really does display. Luther and Melanchthon's Catholicity, especially the confession here. So, Yeah, you know, the Augsburg Confession, I think sometimes it's overlooked, not by Lutherans, but maybe right. by the rest of Protestantism. Yeah. It, it truly is one of the Im- important 16th century documents that gives us a window into the mindset of the Reformers and specifically their Catholicity. So I think what I would say to someone if they're like, no, I've just not seen it. I just don't see how the Reformation could be a renewal. I mean, if someone's saying, I just don't, I just don't think that the Reformers themselves thought that they were retrieving the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I would say go read Augsburg. Right. Because I, I think when you read Augsburg, though that suspicion is put to rest, and you realize it wasn't just that, it, let me put it this way, it's not just that their Catholicity is there. It is intentional, it's self-conscious, because they are quite emphatic to distinguish themselves from the radicals on the one hand, who they think have disqualified themselves from the Catholicity that they are trying to hold on to, and then Rome. To just quote it at one point, one of the of its articles on the church, right? So if there's going to be any moment in which you would say, okay, here's the moment when their Catholicity is going to you know, disappear, actually you see just the opposite. In contrast to Rome, and you know, remember Rome is accusing them of abandoning the one holy Catholic and apostolic church as if they're innovators. They respond, and this is what it says. It says, at all times there must be and remain one holy Christian church. It is the assembly of all believers among whom the gospel is purely preached and the holy sacraments are administered according to the gospel. In other words, so we need to say two things here. On the one hand, the reformers see themselves as rightful participants in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church from the past. 
But I would go further. I think, and Augsburg, I think, brings this out. I think that the Reformers look at the Reformation in the church and hear what they call the right administration of the gospel inside the sacraments, the preaching of the word. When they see that these are administered in the right sense, they think that is further proof and perhaps even further substantiates their Catholicity even beyond Rome. That's a, that is really key. So this is one of the reasons why throughout the Augsburg Confession, you will see them referring to the church fathers again and again. You will see them distinguishing themselves from, say, you know, Thomas Munzer and certain Anabaptists like Hans Denk and many others. And you see them do it almost at every turn. So just take marriage, for example. You would think, okay, now we've moved on. No, you haven't. Even with marriage, they are appealing to the church fathers to say that when you go back and you look at the ancient church, priests and deacons, they have wives, and the church fathers are in support of that. <laughs> so the confession, I think, on the one hand, it holds Scripture up, of course, as the highest standard, the impeccable, inspired, you know, Word of God. And yet, at the same time, they're writing this confession because they recognize the church isn't against us, the historic church is with us. And so we are going to confess the faith so that they can appeal, for example, even on something like marriage, to, to say Cyprian, to say, actually, Cyprian advised that women who do not keep the vow of chastity should get married. And that's a biblical thing, but that's also a, a Catholic thing, Catholic with a small c. And they will do this again and again. They go to the Mass. Well, surely here's where Rome is saying, you are innovators. No, Augsburg responds and says, no, we actually think we're more in line with the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So I think, yeah, as someone who's struggling with this, I, would, I really would point them to Augsburg and say, give it a careful and slow read, and I think your eyes will be open to this. Yeah, that's good, good counsel. Talk to us about the role that art played. One might think just in the whole Reformation movement, like what one might discount that if they don't kind of know the background very well, but you really draw it out. And you also have some very helpful art literally in the book here. And so I found myself reading along with it and really just trying to make sense of some of these woodcuts and that sort of thing. So speak to that, just what the role that it played and then even any insight you may provide us there. Yeah, I, it was so important. And I can't emphasize that enough. Books and books have been written on this. When you look at the 16th century, this is important to emphasize because I know that Protestants get this reputation for being iconoclasts. And, you know, we have these images burned into our head of, you know, Protestants marching in the streets and smashing images and all that sort of thing. But we have to remember that when it comes to images, it did not mean no use of images whatsoever. They are putting images in the German Bible in order to illustrate what the Bible is saying. They are using images in order to make a polemical advance on their opponents, Rome or radicals. So whether it's a woodcut or whatnot, this becomes strategic. Mm -hmm. It's happening on both sides. You're, you'll see it on Rome as well. They have plenty of yeah. art pieces demonizing Luther, you know, the seven-headed Luther and, and whatnot. Or, you know, Luther is this devil who's come out of the center of the earth and 
is wreaking havoc on the church. And but when we look at say Lucas, well, you look at you know the Cranics, right? Mm-hmm. Lucas the Younger, for example. One of my favorites is his fifteen forty six woodcut. And if you get the book, this one's on the cover, and it's even in the middle of the book itself. And it's this fifteen forty six woodcut called "The Difference Between True Religion of Christ and." the false idolatrous teaching of the Antichrist, right? So here it is. (laughs) And everything's pictured here. On the left, you have Luther in the pulpit with the Word of God, but he's pointing his congregation up in the sky where there's a lamb, the Lamb of God, and beyond the lamb is Christ, then mediating before the Father. Below Luther is not just the congregation, but you have the Lord's table and baptism and so much more. But then on the right, you see a very different picture. You have what seems to be a devil who's pumping hot air yeah. <laughs> into the preacher instead. And you, you, behind the congregation, you have in, you know money buckets for the indulgences, and you can imagine what more. This becomes, I think, the woodcuts in particular and the artwork at large, it becomes a medium for theology itself. You think of 1529, you know, how early is this happening? Well, 1529, the famous painting by Lucas Cranach the Elder on Law and Gospel. And here, too, you have a very vivid picture in which on the right you have Christ being crucified, you have the empty tomb, you have Jesus ascending into the heavens, but you have, you know, a skeleton on the ground representing, you know, victory over death. But then on the left, you have everything from the fall to the law itself. Hmm. You know, what is happening? You have Adam and Eve. So here, I think, is another example where this painting is picturing for the German people the distinction between law and gospel so they don't confuse the two, so that in the end, they understand what justification means and what it doesn't mean. And then beyond that, they understand what's gone wrong with the papacy right. and why their polemic is so strong. That's great. Okay, so I'm going to throw a couple different options at you. This is your menu of options, what you want to do here. So I I do want to mention, elaborate on Galatians just for a second. If you choose that, if you choose that door, you can go further. But (laughs) so here's your option. Galatians, and you can talk about all of them. It's your podcast in the end. Antinomianism, and then also the active and passive righteousness. So you kind of clump all those together. But let me just give one piece. I loved I had never read this anywhere, but that you brought out that Luther spoke of Galatians as his Katie Von Bora. Like he said, we were wedded together and it was meant for me. And I, um, Luther had two wives. That's right. Yes. (laughs) I loved that though, but just in the sense of, I very much understand what he's saying. I get really stuck on a book and I'm just like, this is my favorite book, you know? And so anyway, so where do you want to go with those? Well, maybe we can take a sweeping a broad brush to sweep across the whole landscape. I, I agree with you, Sam. There really is, I think one thing I love about Luther is you see his earnest, eager, transparent, just love for the Bible. And how can we not love that about Luther? That's in many ways right at the core of what Luther is about. And Galatians in particular, I think for good reason, in order to distinguish between say our what we could you know elevate as our own righteousness luther says no you are completely dependent on christ if you have a righteousness it's because you've received it you've received it from him you are passive in that sense it is a gift and galatians brings that out is not by works of the law says paul so for luther 
this is right at the breast. He keeps Galatians close to his heart because this was such a liberating door into mm-hmm. his newfound Protestant world. Now, I also want to mention another thing here because, and by the way, if listeners are like, oh, I want to read more about that, of course, you can look at his commentary on Galatians. You also may want to look at his sermon called Two Kinds of Righteousness. It's mm. a short, it's a beautiful statement of the great exchange, or as Luther called it, the happy exchange, you know, our sin for Christ's righteousness. Mm. But there's another side of this I want to just mention before we conclude here, and that is, you know, to this day, Luther and just Protestants at large are often blamed. Well, if you emphasize justification sola fide and sola gratia, and you've removed the law altogether, and you've ruined the Christian life. And Luther, if you look, for example, at his debate in the 1530s with John Agricola, it, it really dispels that whole misunderstanding because here you have, I mean, it's a slow process. Luther is interesting. Luther is actually more patient than you would expect mm-hmm. him to be. Yeah. But in the end, Luther gives Agricola boot because Agricola is teaching the church, sometimes when Luther's not there, it's a bit sneaky, but he's teaching, he's preaching to them that, or, or even to other preachers, you do not need to preach the law for sinners to turn from sin to Christ. The law, that's something that comes later after faith is formed. And Melanchthon, but then Luther as well, they don't have patience for this because on the one hand, it undermines that the law. Interestingly enough, Agricola thinks, no, I'm actually representing Luther. But Luther says, no, this is actually misrepresenting the law-gospel distinction that's so important to begin with. And then on the other side of that coin, in terms of the Christian life itself, if you do this, then you actually turn the Christian life into a type of antinomian mindset. And Luther says, yes, well, his words are really strong. He says, that is a new spirit. Mm. So Luther was accused by Rome of neglecting works. And here is a, an example. You can see it in his early works, but here in this controversy is an example that Luther had no patience for antinomianism. And he says it, I'll just quote him to finish things off here. He says, dared to expel the law of God or the Ten Commandments from the church and to assign them to City Hall. Luther goes on to basically say, if you expel the law of God altogether, Agricola, it's not just the law gospel distinction, but in the end, you've given those who are Christians a license to dare to expel the law for themselves and for their own sake. And Luther realizes that cannot lead to holiness in the end. Yeah, that's so good. Well, brother, this is, again, just such a useful text for all of us, and it's been extremely encouraging for me. And then particularly, you know, even I know it was for you very painful to, you know, cut. You eventually have to go, I just can't deal with Luther anymore. But I do want to end with just this quote that you end this chapter on, actually, and I'm going to read it out. I found it to be very, yeah, just edifying to my own soul and just invigorating and pushing me to continue to follow Christ, right? Mm. So I want to end with this quote. You say, when a 16th century Christian neared those final moments in this world, the priest would enter the room for a last confession. Even to the bitter end, the sacraments were there to transfer the Christian from this life into purgatory. Luther had protested such innovations all his life, but at the moment of death would he sober up and return to the seven sacraments for the sake of his soul. Luther remained a committed Protestant to the end. 
When he died, he made only one confession. His faith was in Jesus alone. And so you go on and I'll stop there. But yeah, just so encouraging to see him following Christ to the very end. And it's by grace through faith that he finds this glorious truth and renews it for the church. And here we are still discussing him today and the sacrificial life that he lived to do that. So thank you, brother. Absolutely. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.